So, Lord, we thank you this morning for all that you have given us. Father, we praise you for the blessings of this day, even the rain. And, Lord, um, as we enter into this study now, will you bless us? Will you challenge us and teach us from the book of Esther? Father, in these weeks of cold weather, um, will you protect us? Will you protect the families in this room? Keep the viruses away and the sicknesses away, Lord. Help us all to be healthy and strong during this period of the year. And Father, um, we just pray that everything that we do here this morning will be for your honor. I pray your blessings on Kristen as she brings this teaching, that you will bring back to her mind with easy recall all that she has prepared that has come from you. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Before I sit down, one other thing. At the brunch that we had in November, somebody left behind this darling potholder (laughs) and this really cute casserole dish. That's yours? Both of them? Just the dish. Okay, if the potholder... I also have a spoon up here that was left behind. If either of those things are yours, feel free to claim them after the teaching. Okay, here we go. All right, good morning. Welcome back, and welcome to those of you who are joining us for the first time. I'm excited to see you all again. Um, A Life of Influence. We studied the book of Ruth last semester. We are studying the book of Esther this semester. Um, Quick recap for those of you who are with us to study Ruth, and just so fill you guys in who weren't with us to study Ruth, that we um, saw last semester our need for a kinsman redeemer, Jesus. And we looked at what it means to be living faithfully and courageously in the face of some hard circumstances. Um, And the overall theme of our entire study, both last semester and this semester, is that God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. He defines our identity and invites us into lives of influence. And we kind of gave ourselves four quick words to help us remember that. Author and hero, that's who God is and what he does. Identity and influence, that's who we are and what we do or what we have um, when we understand who God is and what he does. So now this semester we're moving on to the book of Esther. And before we dive into the actual text of Esther, actual study of Esther, we want to talk about what we know about this particular book of the Bible. And every semester that you're in here, we will do some kind of intro um, of the book or the topic that we're studying. And we do this because it is we want to understand context. Context matters when we're looking at interpretation and understanding of Scripture. And so that's why we do this um, at the beginning of every study. Um, so to During our time together this morning, instead of looking at particular passages of scripture, we're going to look at the context of this book, and we're going to do it by answering a series of questions. We're going to look at who and when, we're going to look at what, we're going to look at where and when, and we're going to look at why. And we're doing this as we do this. I hope that it'll take the book of Esther from black and white words on a page and paint us a picture in living color so that we can really lean in as we're studying together this semester. So let's get started with the who and the when. Who wrote Esther and when was it written? Well, this one's going to be quick and easy. We don't know. 
<laughs> we do not know who wrote the book of Esther. There is no authorship that is claimed um, in the composition of the book like there is in some of the other books. There is obviously knowledge of the culture and customs and a clear understanding of the Persian court. So it's likely written by a Jew who lived in Persia and was familiar with um, the capital of Susa and the customs of the Persian court. It's possibly written by someone in a similar position um, as Mordecai, who is talked about in this book. Um, the language of the book seems to indicate that it was written pretty well after the events of Esther, but not too long because, again, the knowledge of the culture and customs is pretty detailed. So it's likely written sometime in um, the late 400s to the 200s B.C. So that's what we don't know about the book of Esther. Let's talk about what we do know about the book of Esther, and we're going to do it by talking about the what of Esther. And the first thing is the literary context. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter for us to understand the literary context of Esther? It's because it sheds light on the themes, the insights, the revelations that we should draw from this story. Books are written in a particular way for a particular reason. So the book of Esther is a court tale, a tale that takes place in a royal court. It is full of intrigue and irony and satire, and that makes it a literary comedy. Um, it is the story, if you trace it, is in the shape of a U, and that is meant to highlight um, the absurdity of wickedness. We have a descent into difficulty by the main characters, followed by a great reversal and a rise. And this moment of reversal is called Oh, guys, I even practiced how to say this word, and I just blanked. Parapity. Parapity. Okay, you know what? Just read it and make it up for yourself, okay? Read it and make it up for yourself. But the point is that in Greek, this word means a change or reversal, and it's a sudden, unexpected reversal of fortunes or circumstances. And this sudden reversal is a major literary theme um, or highlight that when all seems lost, when we're at our darkest moment, when we have no idea how things are going to change or turn around, we have a sudden shedding of light. We have a sudden reversal of fortunes and we now rise into hope and light. Okay, so um, there in the book of Esther, we have a motif. That's a recurring theme, a recurring um, a vehicle that's used for storytelling, and it's the motif of the banquet. And this highlights the lavish wealth and the strength and the authority of the Persian king. And many significant events in the Book of Esther are highlighted by a bank are highlighted by a banquet or highlighted by feasting. So when you see that show up, pay attention. Okay, pay attention to feasts. Significant events are often marked by feasting in the Book of Esther. And then one more thing is um, there's a literary curiosity. There is no mention of God in this entire book. It is, at first glance, a very secular book. God's name is never mentioned once, not even in passing reference like in Ruth where they say his name in, in dialogue to one another. There's no mention of God. And it seems to be a very intentional choice by the author, especially given the themes and the circumstances and the events that are happening. It seems that this no mention of God is a pretty intentional choice. So that leaves us with the question of why. 
So where is Esther taking place? The historical context. Esther is taking place in the Achaemenid Empire, which is the first Asian empire. And it is taking place in the capital of Susa. The empire had four capitals, um, and Susa is one of them. Um, the empire is vast. This is the, the um, boundaries of the empire at the time. The empire is vast. Um, it took over a lot of previous empires and put them into one. Um, if we're looking, this is, this is the area today. Um, the little pin is Susa. And so the empire, what you're looking at is if you take the border of Iran, part of Afghanistan, part of southern Pakistan, if you look up to Georgia, there by the Black Sea, um, Turkmenistan, all the way over to the Levant, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, and portions of Egypt. So Cairo, Alexandria, all of that area is part of the Persian Empire in this story. Um, the Persian Empire is diverse. It's multicultural, primarily because of the conquering of all those various empires, and now they're under one. Um, the, it's marked by many different languages. It's marked by um, some religious tolerance. Um, that's probably a tactic to maintain control. The kings allow the people to have their culture and their language and their religion um, to help keep peace in their vast empire. Um, the empire was divided into provinces that were governed by a satrap, who's the political power, a general, who is military power, and a state secretary, who's the official record keeper. So there's a division of power between politics and military in this kingdom, Again, primarily to keep peace and control. That king does not want to let go of control and have be overthrown by his um, governors. Um, the kingdom, the empire is um, economically prosperous, and it is generally pretty stable for the most part. There's a standard currency. There's a royal road that stretched from the east of the empire to the west of the empire, which made for easy trade and relatively smooth transportation. And that resulted, again, in immense wealth. And so this is an artistic imagining of what the capital of Susa would have looked like. The palace, specifically. Massive, complex, very ornate, um, designed to display the wealth and the power and the might of the king. And at the time, the empire is ruled by a self-titled king of kings. And he calls himself this to highlight the multicultural state of the empire. So the um, Achaemenid Empire is a political and military superpower. It is wealthy beyond imagination, unlike anything that's been known at the time. It's multicultural. It's generally tolerant of religious diversity. So is any of this sounding familiar? Yeah. So the king at the time of Esther's day is... Um, Xerxes the first. Different translations refer to him different ways. We're going to call him Xerxes for the sake of continuity. Um, that shows up in the New Living Translation primarily. Um, he was ruthless. He was violent, especially in his suppression of any revolts in his kingdom. He was vain. He was a womanizer, and he was a lavish spender. He built an enormous number of palaces and complexes and monuments and things of that nature. 
So when is Esther happening? In our historical context, um, the, Esther's happening about 120-ish years after Daniel. So in 605, okay, so let's remember in the BC times, time is going down. Numbers are getting smaller towards zero. And then we go up to where we are today. So that's why this looks kind of weird. From top to bottom is older to newer. Okay, so Babylon begins the deportation of Jews. Cyrus the Great conquers Babylon. He is the first emperor of this empire. And the year following, he issues a decree called the Cyrus Cylinder, which permits people to leave and return to their home countries or their homelands and rebuild their temples. And this is where we start seeing some of the Jews leaving Babylon and going back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. Um, Several kings go by. Darius I is king. He attempts to invade Greece. It doesn't work out very well. He dies. Um, And his son Xerxes becomes king in 486. We have a war council, which we'll see in the book of Esther. He's trying to garner support to finish the war that his father started and avenge his father's failed attempt at invasion. Um, At the end of that council, we have Vashiti's banishment, the final banquet. Esther becomes queen. And then we have Haman's decree, Mordecai's follow-up decree, and the day of Jewish victory. So it's important, I think, when we read Esther, we can kind of, because things are saying, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened, we can think, oh, this happened in six months. This is years. This is, the book of Esther is happening over years. Okay, so why does it matter knowing where and when? I think it's because it's easier for us to think of these people that we read as characters, For those of us who grew up in the church, you can imagine those little felt board, like 2D, soft and fuzzy characters. We can idealize them. We can put them up on this pedestal. We can say, I can never be courageous like Esther, or, oh, I'm not going to be as righteous as Mordecai. And these are all people we'll be introduced to. So if you've never read the book of Esther, I know I'm throwing around names that might not be familiar, but we'll get there. Promise. Um, But here's the thing. We're dealing with real people in a real time facing real struggles. And when we understand time and place, it suddenly becomes much easier for us to put ourselves in the shoes of these characters. And that's particularly important for us to be able to do in the book of Esther because the author simply reports events, events and actions. Motives of people, inner thoughts of people in this story are never mentioned. So, they, when we have these ambiguous motivations, at best they're ambiguous. Most of the time they're not clear at all. Context can give us some insight. So for example, Xerxes will find that the opening of Esther is hosting a lavish banquet at the end of a war council that is designed to show off his wealth and might and authority to garner support for an invasion of Greece, an invasion that's designed to avenge the failure of his father, So what does this knowledge add to our understanding of Vashti's refusal to appear before this banquet and her subsequent banishment? Or think about this. Xerxes actually attempts to invade Greece in 480, and he fails. He sacks Athens. He looks like he's going to win, and then he fails. Um, What would it be like to be brought in to spend the night 
with a vain and ruthless ruler who has recently been humiliated in battle. And that's what happens to Esther. So that's things like this. This is why it matters that we understand context. So we know about the what, the when, and the where of the book of Esther. Let's talk about the why. Um, Remember, while scripture is written for all people, it is first written to a particular people at a particular time for a particular reason. So while we might not know exactly who wrote Esther or exactly when, it is pretty clear why it is written. It's been written to explain the Feast of Purim. And ultimately, it was written for the Jewish people to understand and celebrate the rescue of um, God's covenant people from annihilation. Now, I mentioned that scripture is written for all people, even if it was written to specific people. And that means there are things we can draw from Esther's story that we can apply to our lives today. So let's look at what I believe to be a major theological theme that we will see time and time again in our study. It's this, God always fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. So the first part of our theological theme that God is faithful to his promises always. Um, We sum that up in our overarching theme by saying that God is the author and hero of of our story. The story of Esther particularly highlights how God was faithful to the ancient covenant promises that he made to Abraham and to his covenant people in the nation of Israel. Throughout their story, God's people are consistently under threat of annihilation, and that has not changed. Um, we, the author wants us to make this connection when he describes Mordecai as a descendant, um, a son of Kish, which is a, means he's a descendant of King Saul. And we're meant to understand this when he explains that Haman um, is an Agagite. Agag was the king of the Malachites at the time of Saul. And the Amalekites were the first to attack and attempt to completely destroy the nation of Israel. So we are meant to make this connection. And with no mention of God's name, perhaps we're meant to wonder, along with the Jews of the time, that if God is still with and faithful to those of his covenant people who did not return to, Jew, to Jerusalem, who chose to stay in a pagan land. So why does it matter for us to know that God is always faithful to his promises? Those of us um, who live in the already and the not yet um, of Jesus' coming, it matters for us because it is important for us to understand that God is constantly about the redemptive, his redemptive work in all of history. All of scripture is telling us the story of the redemptive work that he has done. And it points us forward to the day when his redemptive work will be fully complete. So this story here in Esther, the story of his faithful rescue of his covenant people, leads us to Jesus. This great reversal helps us understand the great reversal that has happened in our own lives. And we can be confident that, as Christy McClellan says, the story does not end in ashes and ruin. Esther's story didn't end in ashes and ruin for the Jews. Our story does not end in ashes and ruin either. God is constantly about the work of the rescue and restoration of his people, even when we can't see it. So the second part of that theme, God fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. Um, An unseen, uh, I like the way Karen H. Jobs, she's a 
theologian and author and teacher says, she says, our unseen God often fulfills his promises, not by miraculous intervention, but through completely ordinary events. Back to our curiosity of Esther. God is not mentioned as the driver of the events in this story. We see ordinary people making courageous decisions in the circumstances they just so happen to find themselves in. It is um, a theme that we see in one of the like quintessential verses of Esther in chapter 4 when Mordecai says to Esther, Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as followers of Jesus? When we live into our identity as followers of Jesus and we choose to live our ordinary, everyday lives accordingly, who knows how our unseen God might use those seemingly small decisions to bring far-reaching influence. So again, the major theological theme of Esther is that God fulfills his covenant promises through his providence. And we choose to say it this way, that God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. He defines our identity and invites us into lives of influence. And I am looking forward to seeing how we discover this together this semester through the book of Esther. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of who you are. Thank you for the reminder of who we are in light of who you are and help us to lean into the lives that you have called us to um, in response to who you are and who we are. I pray that you would be with us as we study and discuss and discover together this semester. Um, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds, that we would be sensitive to the things that you want us to see, um, what you want us to know about you and about ourselves, and how we are to live that out, how it is to transform our lives and our hearts and our minds. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.